Uh, very excited about this series, been looking forward to this um, for a few years actually, been trying to find a time when it made sense uh, to do a series like this. And uh, I definitely feel like this is a timely uh, part of the year when, you know, we, we tend to be thinking more about uh, family, um, to think about our church family and our church family's uh, story. Because if you believe what scripture teaches us, Jesus is the head of the church. And the Holy Spirit has been growing and empowering the church for 20 centuries. And so there is a lot of wisdom and encouragement uh, to be found in looking back at our heritage. Church history is not just some dusty, irrelevant ancient history. No, it is the story of how the God of history has worked through history up to this point. And so we want to understand our place in that story uh, you know, our mission statement here at Real Hope is that we want to join Jesus in his mission uh, to transform lives. And his mission through the church has been going on for 2,000 years. And so we follow in the footsteps of millions of men and women who have gone before us. We are the beneficiaries of what God uh, did through them. And there are others in the future who will be beneficiaries of what God is doing through us now, um, I think this series is going to give us some perspective along those lines. I think it's also going to help us not take for granted some things that are very easy to take for granted. Freedoms and luxuries that we now uh, experience in our life, but somebody years ago paid a very high cost for us to have. Things like having scripture in our own language readily available to us. That was not always the case. Um, I think we're also going to explore in this series some really fundamental questions, important questions that we should know if we are believers in Christ or we're exploring the faith. Things like uh, how did Christianity go from this small group of mostly Jewish followers to this worldwide diverse movement? You know, how did the Bible get written and how did it get put together the way it did and come down to us through the centuries? These are really important questions for us to have a sense of. Um, not only for ourselves, but there are people around us who want to know the answers to these things as well. Um, and I know that God is going to encourage us and challenge us uh, over the next several weeks as we go through this series. Um, today, we are going to look at an important moment in the life of the first century church. It happened about 20 years after Jesus' life uh, in ministry. And the effects of this moment we still experience in our life today. And that moment, I'm going to put up here on the screen for you, is this. It was the Jerusalem Council. And it happened around the year 50 AD, plus or minus a year. Uh, scholars debate the exact year, but it's right around 50 AD, about 20 years after Jesus uh, was doing ministry and, and walking around Galilee and Judea. Um, but before we get into the Jerusalem Council and what it was and what it means, I want to talk for a moment about the moment that we are in right now in 2018. I think we are living in a very divisive us versus them type of moment. And I think we all probably feel that in different ways. And there are some things that are unique about this moment um, there are lots of things that aren't unique about it. I think one of the things that makes this time in history unique is just the way social media has become such a powerful force, and it just, it just fans the flame of all of this. But the, the, the us versus them mentality is actually not unusual in human history. Because of our sin, we are inclined to think in these terms. Um, and it starts out really young. I actually, this past week, I was trying to think of 
maybe some of the first experiences I had in my life where I kind of had an us versus them moment. And this is a really innocent example, but I do remember it. I was in kindergarten and I, you know, I had friends uh, who were girls. And then one day I remember at recess them saying, hey, no boys allowed. And it was like, what? I thought we were friends. And then we retaliated with the very innovative, no girls allowed. And, and so again, very innocent example, but uh, it just grows from there. As, as we get older and when you look through history, this kind of us versus them categorizing um, it, it, as it grows and, and our, you know, we're sinful people, um, it, it grows into deeper and darker manifestations. And history is full of potent messages and monuments to this us versus them thinking. I mean, you just go through history, you see wars, you see slaves, masters, uh, the Crusades, the Civil War, apartheid, the Berlin Wall, North and South Korea, segregation, separate but equal, uh, Israel and Palestine, sexism. Now we've got all the hashtags, you know, black lives matter, blue lives matter, all lives matter, Republicans, Democrats, rich, poor, majority, minority. It's just, we are bombarded with both tangible and intangible messages of division. They're everywhere. Manifestations of us versus them. And the church is not immune to this. The world invites us and encourages us to indulge in this thinking. And many of us have. Us versus them. I think most of us know what it feels like to be an us, and I think we've probably had experiences where we feel like a them. And this matter of us versus them goes right to the heart of how God views us and what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, So the question that uh, we're going to explore today uh, is this. How should we respond to an us versus them moment? How should we respond to an us versus them moment? It could be a cultural moment. It could be a personal moment of something in your life where you uh, are experiencing division with someone or, or a group. And in the first century, as I said, 20 years after Jesus' life, the church had its own us versus them moment, and it threatened to tear the church apart. But by God's grace, he enabled the church leaders at that time to see his heart, and he tore down the walls of division. And ultimately, this opened the door for you and I to hear the good news of Jesus. And so looking back at that moment gives us clarity and wisdom on how to look forward. And what we're going to read about today is relevant and really matters whether you are like a seasoned Christian or you are brand new to the faith, brand new to church. It matters for all of us. I'm going to show you how as we walk through this. So if you brought your Bible, uh, turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, 1. If you are unfamiliar with the layout of Scripture, uh, here's where you can find the book of Acts. It's in the New Testament, which is toward the back of the Bible. It's after the Gospel of John. Book of Acts is after the Gospel of John. Um, If you hit Romans, you've gone too far. Um, If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we have Bibles on the tables. We'd love for you to take that home with you. Uh, But we will have the scripture on the screens as we always do. You can follow along there. So the book of Acts is is, um, kind of a unique book in the New Testament. It's a historical record of the first like 30 years after Jesus's life. So Jesus lived and he he did his ministry and he was uh, crucified and resurrected. He ascended into heaven. What happened in like the next three decades? The book of Acts tells us. Um, And 
we're going to look at this us versus them moment um, that happened that is chronicled in the, in the book of Acts. I want to give you a little bit of background just for a couple of minutes into this moment uh, so that we can fully appreciate its significance. So there were a number of cultural and religious uh, dividing lines in first century Christianity, but the fault line that was really cracking open around this time was the division between Jew and Gentile. Gentile is a word that just means anyone who's not Jewish. So Jews and non-Jews, that was the division um, within the church because for generations, if you know anything about the Old Testament, uh, Israel, the people of Israel were told that they were kind of special in God's eyes. They were his chosen people. And the rest of the world, the Gentiles, they were loved by God too, but they didn't have that special relationship with him. And, And even though God said to the Israelites, you know, I want to use you to reach the Gentiles, the dominant feeling in the minds of most Israelites, is that the Gentiles were outsiders. They were them. And so by the time of Jesus, over generations, the division between Jew and Gentile was really stark and really hostile. The Romans were in charge in the, early, in the first century when the early church was getting started. The Romans were in charge. They're Gentiles. And they used their military power, cultural power, and violently imposed that on the Jews, which, of course, the Jews resented They didn't like that, so they had no interest in reaching their Gentile oppressors and inviting them into a relationship with God. So there was this very bright line in the first century between Jews and Gentiles, and it had been that way for centuries. But now Jesus comes along, and he says, I'm going to be the Savior of the whole world. And he tells his followers, go make disciples of all nations, everyone. This message is for everyone, not just for the Jewish people. And so now the church is starting to grow, And you have Christians of a Jewish background and a Gentile background together in fellowship in the church. And it wasn't like that for centuries and generations. And now in the church, this Jew and Gentile identity is supposed to fade to the background because the new identity in Christ is supposed to be the most important thing. Easier said than done. And so this us versus them moment boils over about 20 years after Jesus's life. And Acts 15 records what happened, how it was handled, and why they handled it that way. So let's look at it. Verse 1, it says this. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. And if you're taking notes, go ahead and highlight this next sentence. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Circle those two names, Paul and Barnabas. Um, It's good to keep track of the names as we go through. I'll come back to who they are in a second. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. Um, Let's stop there. So let's talk about what's happening. We have these two uh, geographic locations mentioned. I'm going to show a map here. Um, so this is Judea, where kind of Jerusalem is. And then up the coast here in uh, modern Turkey, uh, right on the coast, is this city, Antioch. Antioch is a metropolis. Christianity has taken root there. There's like 200,000 people who live in this city. It's massive. And it's a, it's a Gentile city. And so Christianity is starting to take root there. 
And some believers from the south in Judea, the Jewish area, they take it upon themselves to go up to Antioch and school these Gentile so-called Christians. You know, and they basically say, you know what? You need to follow the Old Testament law in order to be saved. They're basically saying, sorry to spoil the party up here in Antioch, but you have to be Jewish before you can be a real Christian. Does that not sound so modern? <laughs> I mean, it just strikes me as just sounds so contemporary. You, you can't be a real Christian if you're not Jewish first. And then Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, one of the most significant leaders in the early church, he was doing ministry up here in Antioch. That's where he was based at this time. And Paul has this kind of dual background. He's Jewish himself. But he grew up near Antioch in a very Gentile area. And he's been seeing all these Gentile Christians, you know, come to faith, put their faith in Jesus. And then he sees these, this delegation from Judea come up and say, uh-uh, you can't really be Christians. And Paul's not happy about this. So as it says, we just read there, they got into a sharp dispute about it. And then basically what's happened is the church in Antioch is going to send a delegation back down to Jerusalem to figure this whole thing out. And Paul and Barnabas are their delegation for that. Um, and so they're going to figure out what, how to handle the situation. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. This is the Jerusalem council. Verse six, um, verse seven. After much discussion, Peter, circle his name. This is the first time we're seeing him in this passage. This is Jesus' lead disciple. Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Highlight this phrase, verse eight. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between, here it is, highlight it, us and them. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, highlight this statement. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. And I would even underline that last little bit, just as they are. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So let's stop there. Um, this delegation comes from Antioch down to uh, Judea, Paul and Barnabas are there, and then Peter stands up and speaks, um, and he says, you know, God is the one who knows the heart, and it, I love it when you look at it in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in. It literally says, God, the knower of hearts. It's like a name. He's the knower of hearts, and the knower of hearts has purified the Gentiles because of their faith in him, and, and Peter makes this point that, hey, look, you know, we Jews have no standing here because we haven't been able to keep the law either. Just take a look at our history. It's not like we've been able to, to uphold the law. So it's like the height of hypocrisy that we would ask the Gentiles to adhere to the law when we ourselves as Jews haven't been able to. 
So expecting, you know, adherence to the Jewish law is a prerequisite to faith in Christ. Just where do you, where do you have any standing to claim that, Peter is saying. And then he just dismantles this us versus them mindset. And he says, look, we believe it's through the grace of God that we are saved just as they are. Peter is saying, our need is the same, Jew and Gentile. We need a Savior. And the remedy is the same for both, Jesus Peter is saying our standing with God is on the same terms as it is with the Gentiles. Jews can be saved by faith. Gentiles can be saved by faith. Let's keep going. Now James is going to speak up uh, in this council. This is not James who was one of Jesus' disciples. This is Jesus' brother, biological brother, who, by the way, did not believe in Jesus during his life and ministry, but after his resurrection wound up becoming the leader of the Jerusalem church. So he's going to speak next, verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Circle James. Um, I think I neglected to put that on the screen, but go ahead and circle James. Good, good idea in passages like this to circle all the names so you can kind of keep track. It says, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter's other name, his Jewish name. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, and he's going to quote scripture here, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent, its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and then highlight this, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. Um, so what James is doing is he's, he's basically just, he's chiming in and he's quoting scripture and saying, yeah, everything uh, Peter is saying and Paul and Barnabas about reaching the Gentiles, God always planned on that. It's in the scriptures. And now in verse 19, James is going to make his decision about how this situation is going to be resolved. Verse 19, James says this, it's my judgment, therefore, that, and then highlight the rest of this verse, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. We'll talk in a moment about what all that means. Verse 21, For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Here's what James is saying. He's saying, they're turning toward God. Good. Don't make it difficult for them. In fact, the, the exact word in the Greek language, uh, it says, um, it basically has a connotation of don't add extra difficulty, extra burdens. It's like James is saying it's hard enough to turn toward God and yield your life to him. You're going to make it harder for them? That's what James is saying. And so now we've heard from Paul and Barnabas and Peter and now James. They're all saying that the Gentiles can be saved by faith in the same way that the Jews are. And it should make it harder than that. So they've been speaking to kind of one level of us versus them, the salvation level, like who can be saved, both Jew and Gentile. But James, in what we just read, kind of seamlessly went into like another level of us versus them. And that's the question of how to relate within the church among believers. Because he talked about, you know, uh, these Gentile Christians should not eat this kind of meat and this kind of meat, and they should avoid these things. James wasn't saying that because they have to do those things to be saved. He was saying, look, if you're going to be in fellowship with Christians of a Jewish background, these things are highly sensitive to them. 
It's going to cause problems. And if you want to enjoy table fellowship with them, you should avoid these things. You would be wise to avoid these things. You don't want to cause disunity in the church and create us versus them within the church. It's called compromise. That's what James is talking about. So then the leaders take action. Let's keep reading. We're almost done here. Verse 22. It says this, Then the apostles and the elders of the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were uh, leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. So stop right there for a second. So they're going to send a delegation back north with a letter, an official letter, which is the result of this Jerusalem council. And the next verses and Acts are a copy of that actual ancient letter. So let's read it. This is the letter that they sent, the decision of the Jerusalem council. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We've heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Last couple of verses, we get to see how the Christians in Antioch responded to this. Verse 30. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were, and I would highlight this, glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. It is hard to overstate how monumental this meeting was, the Jerusalem Council. It was the definitive statement from church leadership that the Gentiles, non-Jews, do not have to become Jewish to be saved or enjoy fellowship with Christians of a Jewish background. This was their us-versus-them moment. And that letter to the church in Antioch was like just taking a sledgehammer to the ancient wall that divided Jews and Gentiles. So, What do we do in our moments, our us versus them moments, when people don't believe what we believe, or they do believe what we believe, but we have other disagreements with them, or we're just struggling relationally? Jesus calls us in these moments to respond in a very countercultural way, taking our cue from the Jerusalem Council. So back to this original question I put out there earlier, how should we respond to an us versus them moment? When we look at the Jerusalem Council, we get our answer. This is it. It's not us versus them. It's us for them. Can we say that together, please? It's not us versus them. It's us for them. It's us for them. God does not call us to be against people. He calls us to be for them. He calls us to genuinely desire that they come into a relationship with him and with us. You know, 20 centuries ago, these leaders in the first century, they didn't know us. They didn't know anything about Houston and Fort Bend County and all that. But you know what? They were for us. 
in that meeting, that Jerusalem council, because they opened the door for the Gentiles, all non-Jews, to come to hear the gospel, to be accepted into God's family, into the church. And they paved the way for the church to go on expanding to places like uh, ancient, uh, you know, Turkey and Greece and in Africa and then on to Italy and then the rest of Europe and eventually across the Atlantic and took root here uh, in North America, eventually springing up uh, around this city that would be called Houston. And then eventually one little branch of that family tree became Real Hope Community Church. And we can trace all that back to this moment. I mean, praise God that those leaders remembered God's purpose was for the Jews to be for the Gentiles, not against them. And that salvation is based on grace, not adhering to a list of rules and making ourselves acceptable to God. But it is so easy. It is the most natural thing to step into this mentality of us versus them. We see people kind of instantly as sort of allies or enemies. You know, someone who needs to be proven wrong. Someone who needs to be schooled. An opponent. I, I think the, the church leaders in the first century, the Jerusalem Council, would just be sort of baffled by that attitude. You know, the goal is for people to know Christ and be welcomed into the church, right? Why would you have an us, why would you act as if you're against them? Even if they don't believe what you believe, why would you act like you're against them? Aren't, isn't your desire to be Christ's desire? that they would come into a saving faith in him and be a part of the church family. Some of us have been living in this us versus them mindset. Here's my challenge. I want to ask you a question just to reflect on this week. Here it is. Who's your them? Who's your them? Those people. Could be a group of people you think is just too far gone. You know, they're, they're far from, they don't care. They're, they're just, they're, they're not part of us. Maybe they're from a different religious background. They're different, from a different part of the world. On the other side of a political dividing line, it could be a group within the church that are them to you, that you disagree with, you don't get. Who's your them? We need to remember the Jerusalem Council. What we're supposed to do with our thems is reach out to them as an ambassador of Christ. That's what we're called to do. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, this passage we continuously go back to because it's such a beautiful picture of what God did for us and what we are meant to do as a response. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of what? Reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though, and this is mind-blowing, God were making his appeal through us. God wants to make his appeal through you. God may be using other people to appeal to you. Maybe you've been listening to this whole message and you're thinking, I've never felt like an us. I've always felt like a them. Um, It's kind of a miracle. I'm even at church today. I've always felt unwelcome. First, just let me say, if if, uh, a Christian leader or a church has made you feel that way, 
uh, in the past, I'm really sorry. That shouldn't have happened. That was not a Christ-like ambassador. You know, we're, we're all capable of, of that. And so I just want to say sorry if that happened to you. I want to say this, secondly. In God's eyes, you've never been a them. You've never been too far gone. God is the knower of hearts, and he knows yours. He made you. He loves you. He desires for you to know him and find life in him and life together with other believers in his church. That's his desire. And if maybe in this room, as you reflect on your life, um, if someone comes to mind or a group that you've been treating like a them, uh, repent of that. I've had to do that. Say, Lord, that was the wrong attitude. My heart was in the wrong place. My heart is in the wrong place about this group or this person. And if it is someone who you wronged or made feel lesser or something like that, apologize. Reconcile. That's the ministry we've been given. Reconcile. You want them to be in us. And then Paul, I love this in Ephesians, he spoke about the unity that is made possible because of Christ. Look what he said in Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. He said, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility. Many scholars believe that there Paul was speaking of the spiritual reality, but also uh, the, the historical reality that in the Jerusalem temple in the first century, there was an actual wall that divided. There was these outer areas where Gentiles could go, but you couldn't go past this little wall unless you were Jewish. And on the wall, there were signs that said, if you're not Jewish and you go past this wall, you have yourself to blame for your death that will follow. Archaeologists have found these signs. Ancient writers wrote about it. The Gentiles were literally kept outside. And Paul's saying, in Christ, that dividing wall of hostility is done. It's over. Anyone far can be brought near. It's not us versus them. It's us for them. But we can't manufacture that in our own strength because uh, we will fail or we'll, we'll be able to do it for a couple of days. If we want to have that attitude, that heart, that posture in the long term, it has to grow up out of the soil in our heart that knows that God was for us. Our ability to be for others grows from the fact that God was for us. He didn't view us as being too far gone. He came after us, rescued us, and gave everything to do that. And so we have to ask God, the knower of hearts, the knower of our hearts, to shape our hearts, to be those ambassadors of him, those ambassadors of reconciliation, 
to be for them, whoever them might be. We have to ask God to do that in us.